I greet you in the high and holy name of Jesus Christ, our crucified and risen Lord. And we welcome you and we know that there's a large live stream congregation with us today. Now you who are here can see an outline of the message on the back of your bulletin with some spaces to be filled in. And uh, I think you in the live stream congregation will be able to pick up on it as we go along. King David, long ago, faced a, an enemy more deadly and dangerous than the coronavirus, and he gave us the recipe for dealing with it. In that great Psalm 23, he said, Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear nothing, not because my assets are great, but because God is with me and his assets are awesome. No matter how big a mess you find yourself in, God is in the mess with you, and he can make a difference. And we have the great promises that God has given us, one that I love to the Corinthians. For my grace is sufficient for whatever you face. My grace will be sufficient. And then that marvelous word from our Lord, nothing in all creation, not coronavirus, not cancer, not Alzheimer's, nothing in all creation will be able to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. If you believe that, say amen. Amen. Yeah, amen. During this difficult period, of course, we're practicing all that social distancing, and it's a good thing. But it's imperative that we reach out emotionally and spiritually and prayerfully, as Pastor Jeff reminded us just a few moments ago. And we know that our most vulnerable brothers and sisters are the older with underlying health problems. And a lot of them are in convalescent centers, retirement homes, and nursing homes. And of course, we cannot visit them. And so no doubt some are lonely and some are afraid. And so, there are other ways we can contact, and Jeff reminded us of that. There's the phone, uh, there is the text and the email, and then there's always the old-fashioned U.S. mail sending a note, not only expressing a message of love and concern, but also asking, do you need anything? Can I bring you something? Uh, the Lord will use that powerfully if we do it. So I'm asking us to resolve today before the sun goes down, to contact at least one brother or sister who's in that vulnerable category uh, to send that message of love and concern. And I know you will. The scripture for the morning is from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 10, beginning with verse 23. And if you're able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's holy word. St. Paul writes, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. Eat anything sold in the mar meat market without raising questions of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. If an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever's put before you without raising questions of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it 
both for the sake of the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. I'm referring to the other person's conscience, not yours. For why in my freedom, why is my freedom being judged by another's conscience? If I take part in the meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of something I thank God for? So, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God, even as I try to please everyone in every way. For I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved." This is the Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Please be seated and let us pray. Take my lips and speak through them. Take our thoughts and think through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you. Unless you speak, nothing of significance will be spoken. Give us your word, Lord Jesus. Amen. A man named Henry left his house one Sunday morning on the way to church. At the same time, his neighbor next door was leaving his house, lugging his golf clubs toward his car. And he saw Henry. He said, hey, Henry, come, come play golf with us today. We need a fourth player in our group. It's a beautiful day. Henry, with a little bit of a self-righteous tone, said, no way, today, you know, is the Lord's day, and, and I'm going to church. The neighbor put his golf clubs down and walked over to Henry, and he said, uh, Henry, I've noticed how faithful you are to your church, and I've often wondered about your church. But you know, this is the fourth or the fifth time I've invited you to play golf with me. But you've never invited me to go to your church. You know, if Henry had been a bit more thoughtful and kind and winsome, he might have extended that invitation to his neighbor, and that golfer might have accepted it. Our scriptural text for the morning from Corinthians is a call for, from St. Paul for winsome witnesses. Do you know that word winsome? We don't use it often. The word means friendly, agreeable, likable, and amiable. And it's a vital asset for Christians. Today in America, surveys show that there are approximately 140 million unchurched people. And even here in the Bible Belt, there are a whole lot of these unchurched folks all around us. What an opportunity that presents if we dare to be winsome witnesses. Let me set the scene for you today for our scriptural lesson for the morning. St. Paul was writing to the church in the Greek city of Corinth, where he had spent some 18 months starting a new church. And then he moved on to Ephesus, which is part of current-day Turkey. And while there, he got reports from back in Corinth that there were some problems in the church he had started. And so he wrote these letters to address the problems that were there. The city of Corinth was a huge place, uh, over one-half million in population. It was one of the great trading and commercial centers of the ancient world. 
sort of like New York City today. But Corinth was also the sin city of the ancient world. A little bit like Las Vegas, but a whole lot worse. I mean, the very name Corinth was synonymous with debauchery. For example, it was the headquarters uh, of the, for, for the great temple uh, to the goddess Aphrodite, the goddess of love. And there, a thousand prostitutes, male and female, worked every day at that temple. Now, the church that Paul founded was just a tiny part of that huge metropolis. We don't know how many members were in the church, maybe just a couple of hundred. So, for them to have an impact in that very corrupt, very sinful city meant that they had to be winsome. And so, St. Paul gave four suggestions here in our text for the morning designed to help those Corinthian Christians be more winsome and effective representatives of Christ. And those four guidelines are right on target for American Christians too. First, in verse 23, we read, everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. We Christians are watched more than we realize. Our words and actions can either attract or repel unchurched people. Now, we Christians are free to enjoy this whole wonderful world that God has created. And in verse 26, St. Paul quotes Psalm 24, verse 1, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. All of it is available to us, but a Christian must ask, how much of this world can I enjoy without harming myself or other people? For example, food is mighty good, and southern cooking is the best. But if I overindulge, I know it's not good for me. It's not good for my health, and I do not set a good example for others. We are supposed to be good stewards of these marvelous bodies God has given us. We should not mistreat them. All of Hollywood's movies are available to us. But if we spend two hours immersed in profanity and obscenity, it pollutes our minds and creates a foul atmosphere for the Holy Spirit who wants to dwell there. And in fact, if it gets polluted enough, foul enough, the Holy Spirit might decide to exit. Furthermore, words from those movies have a way of slipping into our vocabulary. And nothing undercuts the credibility of a Christian quicker than his or her use of foul language. Our smartphones, they're wonderful. They expose us, make available to us the wisdom of the world. They, they help us stay in contact with friends. But I wonder how much of that is beneficial. Uh, I wonder how many opportunities we have had to minister to other people. But instead of looking into their faces and being attentive to them, we were focused on our little tiny smartphones. Remember, in Christ we have freedom to enjoy all of God's big, wonderful world. But a winsome Christian will ask, how much of this world is beneficial to me and to others? St. Paul's second point of guidance is in verse 31. 
Whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. The way we Christians carry on all significant tasks is a witness for our God if we do it with excellence, with a touch of class. The late Pope John Paul II was not only a great spiritual leader, but he also had a great sense of humor. And one day a, a news reporter asked him, how many people work at the Vatican? And he replied, about half of them. <laughs> Christians should not only provide their employer with a full day's work for a full day's pay, but they should also strive to excel. They should add a little touch of class, a little extra touch that back in school was the difference between an A and a B. Many people can bake a cake, but a Christian puts a little icing on the top. Knowing that God is looking over our shoulders, we should never be content with work that's sloppy or careless or half-baked. When we do high-quality work, it's a praise offering to God, and people notice. My late mother was a, a great school teacher. She was a marvelous teacher in the public schools as well as in the church school. And she did not usually check on the homework of us, her children. But if we had a major project, major report, she would ask us to run it by her. And... Um, my older sister Martha didn't take mom long with her because excellence was almost her middle name. But I was different. And uh, sometimes when I would bring my report to mom and she would look it over and she would ask, son, is this the best you can do? I hated that question. And sometimes I would say, well, maybe not mom, but I'm tired. And what I've done is good enough. And she would fix me with a stern look and say, Son, don't ever be content with just good enough. And so I would trudge back to my work desk and try to improve. The Bible declares that in all of our significant tasks, on and off the job, we should, the words of the Scripture, work with all our heart as working for the Lord, end of quote. Now, we're not talking here about some kind of obsessive perfectionism. Indeed, there ought to be some activities in our lives, hobbies, for example, that we really don't have to have excellence. We do it to relax, to just have fun. And that was my purpose in playing golf. That was the, that was the design. That was the hope. It hasn't always turned out that way. And I wonder sometimes about the influence on my language and disposition. Sometimes when I've had a bad round on the golf course and I come in home with a scowl on my face, my wife will ask with a little bit of sarcasm, honey, did you have fun at the golf course today? <laughs> I have a pastor friend who is cursed with the need to be excellent in everything, including his hobbies. His hobbies are golf and fly fishing has to strive for excellence. Indeed, he wrote a book on fly fishing. Nothing that he does is freed from that obsession for excellence. And in the course of time, it, it caused, I think, a, a bleeding ulcer. Uh, because you see, his hobbies added pressure rather than relieving it. 
It is in the significant task of our lives that we are to perform with a touch of class. In our chosen vocation, in our family relationships, as church members and as Christian citizens, we should strive to excel. If you're a teacher, that means having a a good sound lesson plan. If you're a physician, that means making sure that your patient is comfortable. If you're an architect, that means bringing to your design that little extra creativity. The well-known pastor Lloyd Ogilvie recalls hearing one man at a civic club meeting ask another man a very common question, what do you do for a living? And the man's reply was a classic. He said, I follow Christ for my living and practice dentistry as an expression of my faith. The great golfer Tom Lehman used to say, I'm a Christian who happens to be a golfer. I am not a golfer who happens to be a Christian. When we perform all significant tasks with Jesus Christ in mind as our primary supervisor, ah, we are a winsome witness for Him for sure. Here is St. Paul's third bit of guidance. Do not cause anyone to stumble. Don't create problems for other people. Don't put barriers between them and Christ. Now, most of our text today, verses 25 to 30, relates to a controversy among Corinthian Christians about eating meat. No, this was not the difference between vegetarians and meat eaters. No. Had nothing to do with that. In Corinth, there were a lot of pagan temples that had animal sacrifices, usually sheep and goats. And what was usually the custom is you just left a portion of that animal sacrifice there at the temple, and then you were able to keep the rest of it, take it home, use it. All right, here's where the problem came. When you served, when you had a guest at your home and you served him that meat that had been part of a pagan ritual, should the Christian eat it? if he came as a guest to that home. And St. Paul offered this advice, unless somebody makes an issue of where the meat came from, eat it and be quiet. Paul kind of had a don't ask, don't tell policy in regard to meat eating. But he said, if somebody points out that the meat came from a pagan temple, leave it alone, don't eat it. Not because it would hurt you, but it might offend somebody else. And in other words, Christian freedom must not be exercised if it causes a problem for someone else. Don't cause somebody to stumble. Let's switch the subject from food to drink. Is it proper for a Christian to drink alcoholic beverages? Now, some point to the fact that Jesus drank wine. And indeed, at a wedding in Cana of Galilee, Jesus produced some really high-quality wine. Now, some of my friends in another denomination, I won't say which one, it's just a large one, (laughs) say that the the wine Jesus created was non-alcoholic, that it was sort of like Welch's grape juice. Well, as they say in rural South Carolina, that dog won't hunt. (laughs) The Bible will not support that theory. Now, the Bible clearly condemns the abuse of alcohol or drunkenness. And if you know that a guest coming to your house has an alcohol problem, you certainly should not serve him 
an alcoholic beverage. And if you go to a ball game or golf course with him, it would be far better to drink a Coke than something stronger just because you care about him. You want to be a witness. Don't cause somebody to stumble if you can help it. St. Paul challenged us to be, be sensitive to others. And the word in verse 24 that we translate as others does not mean a neighbor or someone close to us. It means the one who is not like me, the one with whom I am most likely to disagree. That's the others he's talking about here. And that means that a Christian tries hard never to alienate or offend somebody. A Christian tries to find common ground even with someone who disagrees him, with him or her in, in, in various ways. So, if I'm a liberal, I should be especially sensitive toward a conservative. And if a Democrat invites me to dinner, I should not wear a Make America Great Again hat. <laughs> a winsome Christian never intentionally antagonizes another person. When I was a youngster, 10 or 12 years old, uh, one Sunday afternoon, I had a raucous football game going in our front yard with seven, eight of my buddies. My father, Papa, who was a preacher, came out and he said, Son, uh, it's a Sabbath day. I wish you'd take your game to the backyard. And I said, Well, Papa, is it the Sabbath out in the backyard too? He said, Don't argue with me. Do as I say. <laughs> now, Papa understood something I did not. Papa knew that there were folks in our church and in our neighborhood who were very strict believers about what you should do and not do on the Sabbath. And they would not take kindly to the preacher's kid having a raucous football game in the front yard. Papa knew there was nothing wrong with our football game, but he did not want to offend someone else needlessly. He did not want to cause somebody else to stumble. St. Paul's fourth and final bit of advice comes straight from that. It issues from that. He says, try to please everybody in every way so that they may be saved. And at first glance, you probably think, ooh, that sounds awful wishy-washy, devoid of principle, just wavering all over the place. And Paul sent a very different message to the church in Corinth, in, in Galatia. To the Galatians, he wrote this, if I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. That sounds very different from what he said to the Corinthians, but there's really no conflict here. Paul is saying that if pleasing people requires you to violate the gospel or holy scripture, you would be a coward if you do it. On the other hand, in cases where no vital issue of faith or holy scripture is at stake, a Christian should be the most flexible person in town. Don't argue with someone over a matter that is not clear in Scripture. In fact, even if the matter is clear in Scripture, don't argue with him or her. I have never known somebody brought to Christ by an argument. Never. Can't you tell when a discussion is turning into an argument? Sure you can. At that point, a winsome Christian says something like this. My friend... We're going to just have to agree to disagree, but can't we be friends anyway? 
Yeah. You know that America is deeply polarized today. You look at your people on television, whether they be leaders or whether they be newscasters. There's so many angry folks in America today. We Christians should be delightfully different. If Jesus is in our hearts, we should notify our faces. A smiling Christian is a more winsome Christian. The late great Baptist preacher, Adrian Rogers, used to say, joy is important in winning people to Christ. Don't go around looking like the advance agent for the undertaker. Amen. Earlier I noted that Lifeway Research Company has shown us that there are over 140 million unchurched people in America, and a lot of them live in the Midlands. My guess is that every one of us lives within a quarter mile of an unchurched person. Your mission field is that network of relationships you have. Family, friends, co-workers, neighbors, customers. Now, we're right here in the middle of Lent, just uh, less than a month before Easter. And this is one of the two seasons of the year when surveys show that unchurched people are more open to a Christian influence than at any other time. And we also know from surveys that 78% of unchurched people say they would be willing to listen to a brief word from a Christian about his or her faith. So, I'm going to issue a Lenten challenge. I want you to think this morning of someone you know who is unchurched to the best of your knowledge. Someone with whom you have some kind of relationship. I'm going to invite you to write that person's initials in the space provided in your bulletin. Now, you're not going to hand this in. You're going to take it home with you. If you write down someone's initials there, you will be making a commitment to do three things in regard to that person. First, pray for them regularly. Two, invite that person to a worship service or other event at Mount Horeb Church. And if it's appropriate over the next few weeks that you invite them to do it by live stream, that's okay too. Then, if a natural opportunity arises in conversation with that person, you would be willing to share a brief word about how Christ has blessed your life. Is that fair enough? Those three challenges, and I'm hoping that everybody will write down the initials of somebody. If you do, I promise you God will guide you in it and will bless the results of it. In a former church I served, a high school boy named Steve uh, came to see me. My secretary reminded me that morning that, that he had called up and made an appointment to see me. I did not know Steve well. I knew he was active in our youth group. Uh, I also knew he was a great big kid, uh, and it was an excellent football player. Weighed about 250 pounds, and that he was a first-rate college prospect. I knew that about him. Uh, I wondered what he wanted to talk with me about. Uh, I thought to myself, is he trying to decide which college to attend? Uh, is he having girlfriend problems? What's going on with Steve? Well, he came right on time. And uh, after we chatted for a few minutes, I said, okay, Steve, what's on your mind? This is what he said, and I'll try to put it in his words. He said, Pastor Bill, 
I've got this real good friend, Bert, who plays right beside me on the offensive line. And he don't know beans about Jesus. In fact, the only time he uses Jesus' name is when he cusses. Now, I want to help him get to know Jesus, but I don't want to mess it up. And can you help me? And so we had such a good conversation about how to approach Bert, what to say, what not to say, how to do it. And he left, and I sat there, and with my eyes wide open, I said a prayer. I said, oh, God, thank you for that great big kid, Steve, who's got such a heart for Christ. And I'm asking you to go ahead and pave the way so that he can be a winsome witness for Bert. Folks, in these coming weeks before Easter, let's resolve to be winsome witnesses. Just imagine if in heaven one day somebody comes up to us and says, I'm here because of you. Could anything be more wonderful than that? In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit,